Thank you very much. Um, if you just keep that uh, passage open, see Zephaniah, it's a real book. You know the old joke about, you know, if you're making something up from the Bible, you quote from the book of I'm a Liar. Uh, there's, a, there's, the, there's a real book called Zephaniah. And um, what I want to do with you this morning is just actually look at one verse from that passage that we just read out, verse 17. Um, in a minute, um, uh, so a minute we'll look at that. I just wanted to say once again, it's just great to be here. Um, not only does it feel like going on holidays, we live right next to a hospital in the middle of the city, really, and it feels like a helicopter is going to land on our house most nights and there are sirens going down, so it's just a beautiful place to come. And it, more than that, though, a great privilege to be, um, to be welcomed by you this morning. Thanks, Graham. Um, it's really, um, we overlapped a little bit at college. I think Graham was a couple of years ahead of me. Um, but there's lots of little connections because um, my wife, Felicity, and Graham and Michelle were at church together a, a very long time ago. So um, uh, it's just a lovely um, uh, privilege to be here this morning. Like I said before, col- the college is, is your college. And so um, this is our little way of actually. Um, getting around the churches in the diocese and actually expressing that fellowship and that partnership um, that's so important to the business that we're doing with the churches across the diocese. And we want to be available for you um, to strengthen the life of your church here um, in what little way that we can, but nonetheless, hopefully, an important thing. Um, So thank you very much for having me. Let's pray together and we'll uh, look at this passage. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that you speak to us, that you speak through um, the, the darkness, the confusion, the rebellion that's in our hearts and speak a word of grace and goodness. And as we reflect on your grace today and the wonder of it, we ask, Father, that this truth would lift us up Uh, and inspire us with joy, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So the verse I wanted to look at is a little verse, verse 17 um, of chapter 3 in Zephaniah. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Psychologists will tell you about the benefits of singing, but what about the benefits of being sung to? One of my colleagues um, was telling me about um, uh, this exclusive club that one of his relatives is a member of, and one of the oddities of this club is that every time they get together and have a meal together, they sing to each other. They literally, they compose these songs. They, they serenade one another, which is even more alarming when you discover that it's an all-gentleman's club. I don't know how you feel about the prospect of being serenaded, about being sung to, but this morning I want us to imagine being serenaded by God. I mean, it's one thing to try and imagine God singing. We can imagine, you know, an opera singer singing on a stage or football fans at the World Cup or something. Or, or perhaps even here at church we can imagine. Maybe you don't want to imagine that. But these things aren't too hard for us to imagine. 
we can get a sense of the sound, the atmosphere, um, and all of that sort of thing. But to imagine God, the creator of the universe, singing, and not just singing like someone sings in the shower, but singing to us, singing to his people, a God who serenades his people. I mean, isn't it supposed to be the other way around? We sing to God, don't we? We praise God, but God singing to us? That's what this verse says. I mean, of course, it's a symbol. It's it's an image, if you like, of his love, the the covenant love that he has for his people. And the the verse makes that perfectly clear. We're not, you know, to kind of presume from this that God has the kind of vocal cords that could outdo Madonna or even Jimmy Barnes. Um, Perish the thought. And we're certainly not to presume from this that, that, that God somehow needs us to make him happy. Older theologians would say, well, it's kind of like an accommodation, God coming down to our level. And thank goodness for that. It's just a metaphor for his love. But to just sort of glide over this image as just a metaphor, an image, I think really risks domesticating its real wonder. You know, the Bible is full of images that I think are are deliberately there in God's wisdom to dazzle us, to arrest our attention, to catch us off guard. So what does it mean, for instance, when the psalmist says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us. As far as the east is from the west. Imagine that, impossibly far, infinitely far. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What does it mean when Moses says, to God's people in Deuteronomy, that although heaven and even highest heaven and earth, everything in earth, the earth belongs to the Lord, yet he has set his affection on you and loved you. In other words, so ravished, so aroused, literally, that's the word there, was the God of the universe towards his people that he cleaved to them as a husband cleaves to his wife. I mean, these are images that are, in, that are designed God in God's wisdom to dazzle us. And we have to let them dazzle us. And that's why God has given us the Bible with books like Zephaniah in it and not some dry theological textbook. See, if we could picture and describe God's love in our own terms, in terms of our own invention, then think about it. The, The character of God's love would never really rise above the power of our own imagination, would it? But in giving us the scriptures and giving this sort of kaleidoscope of images that are so arresting that we could never dream them up ourselves, God is reminding us, I think, that his love is no figment of our imagination. And this is one of those images. A God who is so delighted in his people that he sings. That this is better than we could ever imagine. That this is something real, a reality outside of ourselves that we're drawn into. A real gift from the infinite giver rather than a figment of our own imagination. And what I want to do is just really linger over this image with you and see if we can just let it dazzle us a little bit. 
So let's uh, look at it. The context of the verse makes it even more extraordinary. I mean, apart from a few little glimpses of hope, hints of hope, like this particular verse, Zephaniah has got to be one of the, the bleakest books in the Bible. Zephaniah, I mean, it's very unfamiliar to us, but he was a prophet in Judah, um, in the, the southern tribes of Israel. And he was called in the time of King Josiah, we're told back in chapter 1. And you might remember that Josiah was the, the boy king who cleansed the temple of all of its idols and its male prostitutes and tore down the altars and the high places that had sprung up all over the place and restored the proper worship of God. But according to Zephaniah, as far as God was concerned, all this was really just too little too late. The dreadful 60-year reign of King Manasseh was really the last straw. And the prophecy of Zephaniah is relentless in its predictions of divine judgment. Wave after wave after wave of judgment that will fall on the nations around them, yes, but most kind of scarily of all, most ominously of all, upon the very people God had called his own. As far as God's people, as far as God was concerned, his people had become so skilled in rebellion that they'd kind of built up any antibodies towards correction. They were a lost cause. And God had had enough. And so in, in terms that are strongly reminiscent of the, um, the curses that, um, that Moses predicted back in Deuteronomy 28, the full force of those curses, those covenantal curses, was about to fall on the very people that God had called his own. And it's the blackness of that backdrop, like a black backdrop that a jeweller puts a jewel on so that you can see the brilliance of the jewel that much more clearly. It's the blackness of that backdrop of divine judgment that only makes this verse in Zephaniah 3 stand out more, all the more brilliantly. I mean, can you get a more terrifying prospect than the end of chapter 3, verse 8? The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. anger. And yet out of the scorched wasteland, the ashes of that scorched wasteland, comes verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. And basically verses 9 to the end of the chapter describes this dramatic reversal of fortunes for God's people, a seemingly impossible possibility. But if chapter 3 verse 9 to 20 set out the kind of remarkable scope of this reversal, of this salvation, that idolatry will be replaced with purity of worship, that instead of shame, there'll be honour and praise. That instead of pride, there'll be meekness and humility. That instead of fear, there'll be joy and feasting. Well, verse 17 stands out. Because if the surrounding verses describes what this salvation means for us, all the extraordinary things that God is going to do for his people, verse 17 describes not so much what it means for us, but what it means for God. Why this is important for God. 
And actually, I want to suggest to you that you'll never really appreciate the value of what God is doing for you and will do for you in your salvation, in everything in your Christian life. You'll never truly appreciate the value of that until you realise how valuable it is for God. That's right. You see, salvation's not all about you. It's not all about me. But the more that you see what it means for God, the more you will appreciate the wonder of what it means for you. See, whatever glory, whatever joy there is in our salvation, it'll only ever be a gift. It's only ever a participation in his glory and joy. And verse 17 gives us a little glimpse of that. So look at it again. The Lord your God is with you, a mighty warrior, a warrior who once pursued you in judgment. It's the same word, chapter 1, verse 4, is now the warrior of your salvation, the hound of heaven, as a poem put it famously. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Or perhaps perhaps actually that's a statement about the effect of God's love on him rather than the effect that it has on us. He will be quiet in his love. Or as the old King James Bible put it, he will rest in his love. See, it's not that... um, God has somehow had regrets about his judgment. Oh, the poor things, you know, maybe I've overreacted a bit, like, you know, when I put down 48 on a student's essay, and then I sort of start to cut myself up about it and feel all guilty and think, you know, maybe I've been a bit harsh, and so I just bump it up to 50 and get them over the line, you know. No, it's not like that. It's not that God has just had pity on his quite obviously pitiable and helpless creatures. No, there's nothing here to suggest that the, the unqualified, uncompromising assessment of God's judgment has somehow changed. These people are wretches. An odious stench in his nostrils. And yet, he saves them. And his salvation is not like an act of regret or pity, like it might be for someone marking a student's essays. No, it's much more like the work of an artist who takes something of no beauty, really, something entirely worthless, you know, a blank canvas, a a lump of clay. Actually, in this case, it's something that's not just worthless, but wretched and odious and offensive, and then takes it and turns it into something great. And then when the artist is finished with their brush or with their chisel, they put it down and they rest. It is finished. Behold, it is good, it's very good. See, the satisfaction of the artist who has completed their work is not just a relief that the job is done. It's a rest that's filled with delight and joy at a job well done. Although, of course, a lot of artists are perfectionists and they're never really happy and they keep tinkering, don't they? But, but there comes a point when they say, this is done and it, it's good. And there's a kind of delight and joy then that almost, as it were, completes a circle of beauty that begins with the expression of the artist and then is radiated back to the artist themselves through the object that they've created. That's the image here. 
You see, the act of redeeming and saving sinners is no less than the artistic expression of divine love and beauty that cannot but bring the divine artist joy and delight as the beauty of what he has done is radiated back to him. He will rejoice over you with singing. C.S. Lewis, he famously put it like this, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. It does seem impossible, doesn't it? I mean, I find it an impossible thought, and my guess is you too, too. Put it like this. I mean, imagine for, uh, for a second you're having one of those um, big birthdays with a zero at the end, you know. And someone, you know, who's close to you has very thoughtfully arranged a party and, and lots of people have been invited, your family, your friends, your work colleagues, your neighbours, people from church... And even more thoughtfully still, the person has decided that, yeah, let's have some speeches, you know. Let's have some people get up and give some speeches. And let's assume it's a big grand birthday, a 60th or a 70th or something, not a 21st, where the aim of the speeches is to humiliate you. No, 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 everybody's now all grown up and it's all very serious. And the speeches, they have no other function than to sing your praises, and so up they come and, they, and, you, and you hear all about your achievements and, uh, you know, how well you did at school and university and then business and then people list them off one after the other and then people move on to your wonderful family and, you know, your wife and your children, husband, wife and, and your children, maybe your grandchildren as well and then they move on to your character and how generous and kind you are. And, and so it goes on. What a jolly good fellow. Raise your glasses, everybody. Here, here. Now, I don't know about you, but that's just got to be about my worst nightmare. I think one of the things I'm looking forward to about my own funeral is that I won't be there to hear the eulogy. And I don't think I'm alone. I mean, I suspect most of you would find a thought like this just a little awkward or embarrassing wouldn't you? And I think, I think, why is that? I think partly it's, well, you know, it might be if you're a proud person, you might actually quite enjoy the thought at first, you know, but I suspect you wouldn't want anyone to know that because if they did, then they'd have to take it all back because they'd find out what you really like. And so when it comes to, you know, time to say a few words of your own, it calls for a little bit of put on modesty, you know, or something like that. But then if you have a more sensitive conscience, the awkwardness is likely to be a little more pronounced as you sort of recoil in horror and embarrassment because you know full well that the vast majority of what they're saying simply isn't true. And you fear that, you know, they know it isn't true and they're just making it up because that's what you're supposed to do in speeches like that. I mean, at more College, faculty have this sort of feeling most days, I've got to tell you. Um, psychologists have even given it a label. It's called imposter's syndrome otherwise known as the emperor has no clothes, you know, that you're getting up there and they want you to be the expert, but you know full well that you're not. And, you know, sooner or later, they're just going to see straight through you. 
And married women will tell you this, that the, the, even just the experience of walking down the aisle and having all the cameras facing in your direction will induce that kind of feeling. But listen, look, if you find even the prospect of another human being getting up and singing your praises, if you find that even just slightly awkward, if you still fear the accusing finger, someone's going to see through me, see what I'm really like, the accusing finger of another human being, or even, even your own accusing finger, what makes you think that you'd be any more comfortable with the prospect of God, the maker and the sustainer of all things, the one who is... The prophet Jeremiah puts it, searches the heart and examines the mind, who sees the pride, who sees the envy, who sees the selfish ambition, and who sees all the mixed motives and sees it with a clarity that, that you don't even have, that nobody else could have, and yet who sings your praises. How is that even possible, let alone imaginable? God is not the kind of God who makes stuff up. He is the God of truth and he knows the full truth about you and me. He's not going to fudge things because he feels sorry for us. So how is verse 17 even possible? Well, I think you might have a hint of the answer and you might know what I'm going to say, but it's worth saying it still. The answer, of course, is that it is impossible. God cannot fudge the facts. He cannot and will not somehow change the truth about you and me. And if that's not obvious, God has put a stake in the ground of human history to make it perfectly clear. And that stake is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no greater affirmation of the truth about ourselves than the cross of Jesus Christ. He did this, the Apostle Paul tells us, to demonstrate his justice. Because in his patience he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just. But that's not how the Apostle Paul finishes that verse, is it? He did this, Paul says, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. For if the cross affirms what is utterly impossible, that the Father should sing the praise of wretched sinners like you and me, like the Israelites of old, it equally affirms that that impossibility is not only now possible, but is an actual reality. For through the very judgment that was exhausted at the cross, sinners like you and me are drawn into the love and delight that the Father has eternally lavished on his Son. See, it's not just that the, Father that the Son turns aside the wrath of the Father towards us as if the, the cross just wipes the slate clean, as it were. That, of course, is true. It does. But it does so much more than that. If I can change the image just a little. The cross does 
so much more than just remove all the crud and the filth that has accumulated on the canvases of our own lives, as if the cross just turns us back into blank canvases. Now, on that canvas, not only does he remove the crud, but he paints the most magnificent and exquisite masterpiece that will be the envy of every cosmic being, we're told, of all the powers and principalities into eternity, so that even when God sees it, even he will sing with delight. Behold, it is good. Indeed, it is very good. Because, you see, the masterpiece that the Father sees is no less than the artistic creation, if you like, of his beloved Son, who at the end of his life on the cross was able to put down his brush or his chisel, as it were, and look back over all that he had done, even to that point of dying on a cross, all that he had done for our salvation, and say, what did he say? It is finished. And through that cross, we are drawn into the eternal circle of divine delight between the Father and the Son. It's a doctrine that theologians give a fancy label to. It's called adoption. We don't have to work hard to understand the image of adoption. What is the doctrine of adoption mean it means that the son as one writer has put it is like the treasury in whom the father puts all the riches of his grace taken from the bottomless mine of his love but it also means he's like the priest into whose hands we put all the offerings that we return to the father and he bears the iniquity of our offerings and he adds incense to our prayers And surely that's how we are to read the promise of, say, Zephaniah 3, verse 9. How will he purify the lips of the people? How will they serve and worship him with acceptable offerings? The answer is we are to read those as we are in Christ. What lame and blind sacrifices should we otherwise present to God? So, brothers and sisters, that's how much our salvation means to God. It means as much to him as, us, as his son. But there's still a sense in which this truth still dazzles us, isn't there? As if its light is just a bit too bright for our eyes. You know, it's like going out to the midday sun in the middle of summer. You sort of squint. I mean, we can speak about the joy of the gospel and the wonder of our adoption into God's family, into Christ as a kind of a legal reality. There is now no condemnation, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus legally. Yes, that's true. What is impossible is actual reality. But there is still a sense in which we've not fully entered into the joy of that truth, isn't there? that the legal reality, if you like, of our adoption into God's family has not yet been fully internalised in our lives. And so sometimes, you know, our talk of these things and our admiration of these things can, uh, you know, feel a little bit like you're looking at a beautiful painting in a gallery and you see its beauty and you admire it and you might talk about it 
um, with the person you're with. You might even write about it and go and study about it and you might even go and preach about it and seek to share the glory of it with others. But sometimes we wonder if in radiating its beauty and its glory, has it actually taken any notice of us? That's the thing about paintings in galleries, isn't it? You know, we notice them, but they don't notice us. And to the extent, I think, that we still feel a little uncomfortable about even another human being singing our praises, taking notice of us, I think we still struggle to believe that in Christ, God has taken notice of us. It's like we're not quite ready for it yet. We haven't fully entered into the joy of it. And so in our lingering disbelief, we still content ourselves for far lesser pleasures. We are half-hearted creatures, C.S. Lewis says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child, he says, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. And so despite our best intentions, we often catch ourselves being sort of daydreaming about lesser things than Christ, lesser things which are, of course, in the end bound to disappoint us. But despite our best desires, we struggle to raise ourselves, raise our hearts to the heights of what we are in Christ, don't we? <laughs> It's like there's still a little bit of the the lost son in us, you know, the prodigal son, the lost son. It's like we're children searching for love in faraway places, desperately hoping that we can find there what we sort of fear that we're missing out on at the hands of our heavenly father. So, brothers and sisters, I, I, I don't know how you're feeling about your Christian life at the moment, whether you feel a little flat perhaps about how much progress you're making as a Christian. It can feel like one step forward and two steps back. Often feels like that, doesn't it? And if you wonder, perhaps, will God's patience eventually just run out? I want to encourage you by finishing like this. As surely as your body is decaying and heading for the grave, and that's pretty sure, isn't it? Your father is doing absolutely everything in his power to make that legal reality of what we are now in Christ fully real and visible in our lives for the whole universe to see. Just the fact that you're dying is a sign of your sanctification, see? We had that... um, Wonderful passage from John's first letter read out as well and the little verse um, at the beginning uh, of that chapter which is on your sheet. Wonderful, wonderful verse. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, John says. We are children of God. But then to remember... He goes on, he says, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, 
we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And it's then, you see, that we'll enter into the full joy of God's song, into the joy of Zephaniah 3.17, when the Spirit of Christ will raise us up to make us into the objects of beauty of which we are now just basically but a shadow. Well, listen to how Zephaniah puts it at the end. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. And I love what John goes on to say next after, he, after that little section I just quoted. He says, all who have this hope in them purify themselves even as he is pure. In other words, he's saying this is a hope that we need to feast on. Even if we're not quite ready for it yet, it might give us a little bit of indigestion. But the more we feast on it, the more it will start to take shape in our lives. The more it will purify us, in other words. One writer puts it like this. He says, every time I hear that voice, you are my beloved on whom my favour rests. I know that I am at home with God and have nothing to fear. As the beloved of my heavenly father, I can walk in the valley of darkness. No evil would I fear. As the beloved, I can cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils. Having received without charge, I can give without charge. As the beloved, I can confront, console, admonish and encourage without fear of rejection or need for affirmation. All who have this hope in them purify themselves just as he is pure. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, would you finish then your new creation pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. Amen.